This is The Universe, Episode 3, Science for Americans, on Saturday, February 18th, 2012, stardate 11003.1. Do you know what this is? Oh, we're starting? Aren't we going to start? It doesn't matter, you can, you can start in any way you'd like. It's oh. your show. Okay. Um, so, in this, uh, I feel like we should start with the, like, the stuff. Well, I guess I can start with this. So, I was reading uh, a short story by H.P. Lovecraft the other day called Rats in the Walls, I think. Mm. And uh, it's about this guy who uh, doesn't know much about his family history, but he knows that, uh, like, a couple generations ago, his uh, his ancestor, his direct ancestor, killed all of his, like, family and fled this house in, I don't know, somewhere in Europe, England or something, I don't know. Uh, and... Uh, he didn't know why, but he eventually, like, made a bunch of money in the States, the United States, um, and decided to go back and purchase, like, the old family estate, and so he does, and all the locals are, like, really suspicious of him and think that his family is cursed and evil, mm-hmm. and he doesn't really understand why, and he's, like, a, he's, like, a smart guy, he's a, uh, like, an intellectual type, um, and so he wants to figure out what was happening, and so he, like, hires all these locals to fix up the house. And once in a while, while he's in the house, he will hear things, like rats scurrying in the walls. But they're, like, solid stone walls. So that doesn't really make any sense. Um, until he finally decides to investigate, and he follows these rats down into the basement and mm-hmm. notices that they are, like, seem to be disappearing under this altar in the basement. And so he goes and he gets... Yeah, there's they're in the walls. Crap, run. Um, so I don't even know if you. I don't know if they could hear that. Oh well. Um, so he gathers some like fellow explorer explorer type people um, to go down there with him and uh, investigate. And uh, so they they finally move this altar and find some stairs leading down into a basement. And so they are, like, under, like, a sub-cellar. And so they, they go down there, and they find this whole underground complex, like, old buildings and things like that. And it turns out that a lot of them look like prisons, sort of, like mm-hmm. cells and things. And they find bones in there of, like, sub-evolved humans. Hmm. And... I, I think I read about this, yeah. And so this this guy is, like just realizing that his family, like, his ancestors used to, like, breed subhuman things and eat them, and, uh, which is, like, creepy in its own right. Yeah, it is pretty creepy. And then he is, uh, following, or he's walking next to the other, like, the the main other explorer guy that, that came down there with him, and the other guy falls into this pit, and so the main character tries to, like, save him and ends up falling in with him. And then he starts to go crazy uh, at the bottom of the pit. He can't see anything, and the story sort of cuts out from his point of view there and then goes back later where he explains that they found him at the bottom of the pit having eaten Mm -hmm. the other guy that he fell down there with. It's kind of like a creepy creepy thing. So the book I... uh, Not the book, but the short story I read from H.P. Lovecraft was... I don't even know the name... But essentially, this guy was an explorer, and he found a cave, and he wanted to go explore it. So he took some lights, and you know, brought some food, and you know, backpack and stuff. 
and he goes down and you know he's down there and he goes with two you know he's with another guy and at some point you know like one guy leaves he goes back up to the surface because he didn't want to be down there because they kept hearing things so then somehow this guy is going on his own down into the depths of the cave and you know it's not like a straight down kind of thing you know you have to climb and do all sorts of little things and so somehow he gets lost mm-hmm. and then his light goes out it, it breaks like he runs out of candles or whatever um so then he starts hearing more things. So then, eventually, he's attacked and he's, he's killed by some creature. And it turns out the creature is another guy who went down there previously uh, that was an explorer. And he got lost and decided just... Uh, I'm sure he didn't decide to willingly. Like but crazy. Yeah, he kind of just went crazy and he just ate whatever was in the cave, I guess. And <laughs> so anybody who's an explorer and then goes in the caves is eaten. I wonder if he realized that the guy was a human when he ate him. Or he's just too far crazy. Well, you know, like like the like the subhumans in your story. I think that's one of H.P. Lovecraft's things. Things, yeah, yeah definitely it is. Yeah, motif like the, kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. And uh, you know, I don't. I, that's the only story I read. It was too I'm, hard. I'm reading a, like a collection, or I'm like slowly working my way through a collection of his short stories, and they're yeah. all just weird. Weird. Yeah. yeah, I just recently read like one of the most famous ones, The Call of Cthulhu. Mm-hmm. It's pretty good. That's a whale, I mean, like, right? No. Oh. Different Cthulhu. Cthulhu. Yeah. Here, um, I I will post a link to the Wikipedia page. Okay. In the in the show notes. That's, Cthulhu that's is like perfect. This elder god thing that Lovecraft made up. Mm. Um, that's like just a giant headed, like tentacle faced beast with like wings, and he's all scaly and slimy and stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, he's like one of the elder gods mm-hmm. in Lovecraft's um, mythos. So pretty. I, I mean, like I enjoy. I enjoy his writing. Who gets Lovecraft. the same mythos out of sight of I be English? I do, obviously. Nobody does that. I just did it. No, that is illegal. <laughs> the IBOP is going to arrest you. You know what that is, right? Yeah, I know what that good, is. Good. Do our listeners, should we explain? Yeah, well, let's, let's, let's tell the listeners. Go ahead. You want me to? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, go well, the IBOP is the International Baccalaureate Police. What's no, the L for? No. International Baccalaureate Organization Police? Yeah, right, right. I forgot the organization. See, Something I'm Something like that. Yes. So, the IBOP is International Organization Police. And back when we were in an IB school full of IB classes, you know, any cheating would invoke the IBOP. This was obviously just something that we made up. Allegedly. Allegedly. Well, right. Well, yeah. One of those <laughs> conspiracy yeah. things, you know. So... How that goes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Uh, the The... Cthulhu link is in there. Yep, I got it. That was a weird thing. Um, yeah. Anyways, uh, how about we do our introductions now? Yeah. So, um, so Sam is actually live in studio this week. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Whatever. And so, since Sam is in studio, um, that means he needs a driver, and Sam is so rich he can afford one. Yeah, that uh, (laughs) personal chauffeur. Yeah, um, along with a headband. So, he has Matt here as his driver today, and um, Matt is visiting. Uh, hi. And so he's the special guest, just like Sam's been the guest on At The Nexus all the time. Mm-hmm. Big week? Doing well? Uh, yes, yes I am. Have you um, burned any fingers today? Because uh, you know, today was the physics day, allegedly. Mm-hmm. So, did you, yeah. did you hear that? Uh, yeah, a little bit. In the recording, you can't. That's good, I guess. Nobody's going to know what I'm talking about now. You know something interesting, though? When you have the iPad completely mute, stuff can still come out of it. We talked about this on the show the other day. 
Yeah, seems so. Mm-hmm. So tell us about Physics Day. Um, you were hosting Burning Fireball. Okay, not a daring fireball. Not a daring one. That's good. Uh, the cannons didn't work. Nothing worked except for so tell us about the cannons first. Circles. Tell us about the cannons first. Um, this little PVC pipe with some screws drilled in, and then a little electric starter, and then we just drilled a hole and put a lighter in it and tried to blow stuff up, and um, it didn't really work very well. Hmm. Not enough pressure. I don't know. I mm. think we couldn't get enough air in there. Yeah. Uh, then the, normally we do dry ice, but since we didn't give it the, even get the cannons to work, we kind of gave up on the dry ice because that's what the cannons. You, you can't for. get it on Saturday, I don't think. Oh, that's too bad. Aren't they closed? I don't know. Where do you buy dry ice? Dry ice is at JJ's Dry Ice. JJ's Dry Ice. That's right. On University. As opposed to JJ's Dry Chicken. <laughs> <laughs> JJ's Fish and Chips, I believe, is the name. Whatever. <laughs> I like my answer better. Um, oh, we got to do it all at the same time. All right. There we go. There's a group pop drink going on right there. Is that what that is? Mm-hmm. That's what I called it. Mm. So. Well, so uh, normally Physics Day is more exciting than this, but it was a little bit of a fizzle. But the no, cool no, it got st- really exciting at the, the end. Co- the, cool <laughs> the cool stuff was that we figured out that our lighting fluid, what was that stuff? Uh, starter fluid. So it's starter fluid. Old cars and we, stuff. We could spray it onto my patio bricks, and we could make streams of fire. It's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. It is. So we made some runes. Oh, yeah. Some magic runes. Yeah. And sprayed a bunch of oil and all sorts of other stuff and found out that lighter fluid doesn't burn. <laughs> so. And, yeah. You know, I probably shouldn't say any of that on the air, but I had this this bottle of charcoal fluid. You know, it lights up charcoal, or it's yeah. supposed to do that. And so I'm I'm trying to squeeze it out because you know it's a little bit em- you know three quarters empty and I'm trying to squeeze the rest out and the, the plastic bottle just shatters in my hand. It's it, cold. That's not a normal behavior yeah. for bottles of plastic in any temperature. They shatter easier when they're colder. Didn't explain the bo- other bottles in the room that didn't shatter. Wait, wait. So yeah, this charcoal starter fluid just got all over Ryan. Yeah, and, and his and, wizard robe and my wizard and robe. His wizard robe. Yeah. So. The problem is... And then didn't light on fire. Yeah, it did, did not light at fire at, at all. Which right. is good, because my, half my body was soaked in it, so... Uh, it's decent. We tried really hard, but it still should light. Anti-magic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Revolutionary. So... Must have been at the holder nearby. <laughs> oh. In, uh, I don't read that it, book. No, it's not. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons. I don't read that book. It's not a... Well, yeah. role-playing game. Uh-huh. Anyways... If anyone who's listening is wondering, Beholder is like this giant monster floating head thing that has one large eye and then a bunch of tentacles on its head with smaller eyes. Mm. And the the smaller eyes in like the uh, what is game, it called? A Beholder. B e h o l e d o l d e r. Yeah, I got it. It's in the yeah. show notes now. Um, and uh, the big eye is like a null magic field. So it's just it's interesting. Obviously, nobody got that. But anyways, it looks kind of creepy. Yeah, it's a, it's like a classic D and D villain monster thing. Uh, how's uh, class this week? Pretty good. It's good. Not too. Didn't eventful. didn't we just do a podcast on Wednesday? We did. Yeah. Which, this is kind of weird, but uh, we had we had to make up. Yeah. For that. Yeah. Delay. Lost weekend. That's okay. Uh, so I think you've had your next two classes because you uh, told us that you only had two by the time we did it on Wednesday. Yeah. So you've had your the rest of your classes. Yeah. Anything new? More, more of the same. Uh, it was actually uh, 
studying for midterms. It was okay. like midterm review mm-hmm. classes at midterms this week. So, yeah. And how are your classes, Matt? Um, they're all going pretty good. Yeah. So, uh, do you get off next week? Yeah, I got Monday off, Tuesday off, like every Tuesday, and then Friday off as well. That's uh, really lucky because yeah. the sad, sad among us at the U of M get nothing. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, why why do you have Monday and Tuesday and Friday off? Uh, Monday because it's President's Day. Tuesday because I never took a class at met on a Tuesday, and um, Friday off because my teacher wanted it off for professional day or something. Um, he wanted to go do something. I wonder if he's bowling or something. <laughs> bowling. Nice. Yes. Well, you can see the academic rigor there. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, well, that's good. Uh, my classes have started their midterm run, so for the next five thousand weeks, I'll be in midterms. My midterms finish next week. I don't know, I'm stepping on something cushy. Might be a dog. Yeah. I think there's a dog in the room. Well, it's not moving. Oh, well. Hopefully it's not a dead dog. I'll stir it's it up. alive. It's warm. It's good. It's good. Uh, yeah. So, uh, let's do the, the news. All right. Yeah. Sounds good. So, Matt talked about NASA... And it's server server rack, yeah, oh, yes. uh, and uh, you know, a lot of fun. And that is pretty fun. So, do you want to mention that? Can you tell me a word that starts with an F and ends with a K? Facebook. Okay, awesome. Also, um, so not lots of budget cuts, and um, they've closed um, NASA computing. Like um, they just they had all these cool IBM towers that um, did lots of um, I don't know. This I know they have lots of calculations to make, and I'm not even sure what all they do, but uh, they just had to unplug that. And um, they had a picture of it. It's this beautiful black server case with um, this cool LED rope light down the center of it. And um, mine's made out of two by fours strapped together with um, screws and zip ties. But, your, but yours doesn't break when you jump on it either. Yeah, it is really strong. Yeah, so that is a, mm-hmm. kind of a bonus. Yeah, because, yeah, so. you know, all that jumping that goes on on server racks. Have you ever been to Central? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so also. Uh, there's more NASA news, and Sam found this. So yeah, this is this is sort of a going to be a recurring segment, I think, on the show. As long as NASA's around, right? Not, might not be too much longer. Yeah, this is true. This is a very sad fact. So I guess we'll start out with that then. More budget cuts for the 2013 fiscal year mm-hmm. uh, have been released from the White House. Uh, it's a, a decrease from last year. It's like the lowest it's been for almost 10 years, I think. That's ridiculous. Um, yes, I think it's very ridiculous. Uh, and so NASA's having to figure out where to make these cuts, uh, with their reduced funding. Um, and so one of them was education, which, Mm. that doesn't make any sense. Obama's big focus on STEM and all that. I mean, I just really... the listeners don't know what STEM is. Oh, um, the science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Mm-hmm. Fields. Um, that's that's been a big focus for. E.g., the, the fields that make money. What? That's the fields that make money. Oh, yeah, true. The fields that we need more people working in in our economy. Um, and so that's kind of been a big focus for the Obama administration. So it's kind of surprising that those budget cuts are happening in that area. Um, and also, like we mentioned on Wednesday, um, I hope that doesn't fall. Okay. Anyways. Um, like we mentioned on Wednesday, the collaboration between the European Space Agency and NASA is being cut because NASA doesn't have the funding to go through with it anymore. Um, let's see. It looks like here there is a 38.5% uh, decrease in the funding for Mars exploration, which is a ridiculous number. 
um, that that like pretty much just obliterates any option for near future exploration of Mars after the current rover. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's pretty yeah, sad. Yeah, it, it's it, it's terrible thing. Like, because um, we were talking about Voyager last week, mm-hmm. and if Mars isn't even an option. You know, other planets are certainly not going to be an option. We and I think Voyager missions, or you know, Voyager style missions, are much more important than any 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 even just uh, planet landing because we can see other planets from here, and you know, we can guess and study. But we don't have a lot of things, you know, outside of our solar system. And like what we said last week, we want to get our perpendicular pictures. Mm-hmm. So it is pretty bad. Yeah, and uh, so I mean, it's not. I I, didn't, I don't mean to make it sound like it's. Obama's fault. Obviously, the, his administration is having to deal with the current economic crisis, um, and uh, the public doesn't is not being or is not in support right now of the of mm-hmm. NASA's exploration pursuits. Do you suppose that's because it's an election year and he knows that he needs to? I think so. I think that um, that that's definitely a big factor. He wants to try and the budget has been a big criticism of him so far. Mm-hmm. Um, the the growing debt and things like that. So he's obviously probably trying to uh, sort of appease people on that side. Um, Yeah. uh, But it's not, I mean, NASA NASA has some issues, too, as far as how they handle their money. Um, Right. One one of the big ones is project estimates. Um, Mm -hmm. They're, for example, like, the the big project right now is the James Webb Space Telescope. This is sort of the successor, or will be the successor, to the Hubble Space Telescope. Oh, which really? I'm sure all of you have seen pictures from the Hubble Space yeah, Telescope. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so this James Webb Space Telescope is sort of going to be the next big space-based telescope, um, and it will do a lot of... It will make a lot of progress in f- like fields like astrophysics, astronomy, that those things. Um, and... The projected budget was, uh, I think, one billion when the like when the project started, and uh, now they're at about eight billion, I think. Mm. So uh, they need a, a little bit. They need to make more accurate estimates, I guess, of project costs. Um, there's also a lot of debate on whether to spend the money like on a lot of smaller programs or to focus on like a couple big things. Um, there's a, there's a lot of debate in this astro- in the astronomy community about sort of what, how many and of what size experiments to do with the limited budget right now. Yeah, you know it seems like it's it's more of a political thing right now. It's not even like people are interested. It's that we just don't have cash to invest. And like our previous title, we need competitors we're afraid of in order to actually have a compelling reason politically to do space exploration and, you know, studying science, uh, with NASA. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so, a little bit more NASA news. Um, there's a, well, this isn't quite NASA, I guess. This is related. Um, it's in space. That's NASA's department. This is true, but this is a foreign, um, space company, I guess. Um, so... All the satellites that we put up into um, Earth's orbit tend to stay up there. Yes. When they break down, get hit by a meteorite, mm-hmm. turn into a bunch of smaller chunks, they just sit there orbiting 
the earth in sort of like a like a trash field right and that the density of that layer of like space junk around the earth is getting to what a lot of people think is like a tipping point um as far as how dangerous it's going to be to leave earth right which would obviously put a severe or would put any human explorers at even greater risk mm-hmm. um and endanger the any other instruments that are shot into space like any uh sensitive equipment things like that um so there's a company uh oh this is, i guess this isn't a company this is a swiss space center um so a, a country and they're <laughs> right corporations are people mm-hmm. um so they they designed this uh, satellite called Clean Space One, which is designed to go into space and sort of latch onto larger chunks of space junk and throw them back towards Earth, um, so that they like burn up in the atmosphere, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's an important thing, and this company, the Swiss Space Agency, Swiss Space Center, whatever, thinks that it will be uh, like a good, a viable option trying to make it cheap enough to be able to sort of, like, send a fleet, essentially, out to uh, make leaving Earth's orbit easier. You know, do you know what kind of densities are in place here? Like, I mean, it's not like the stuff is enough that you could see it. It's not like it's blocking out the sun. It's just, like, it's got to be, like, pieces per, like, well hundreds of miles. Yeah, and the other thing is this is like a this is a three dimensional right. shell essentially mm-hmm. because there's satellites orbiting at different levels distances yeah. right from the Earth um, and traveling at different speeds mm-hmm. things like that. Uh, so I, I'm not sure what like the density of uh, the um, the space junk is at the moment, uh, but they the I mean like the the amount of s- we're, we're sorry. We're just captivated increasing. by the wood tower. Yeah, our uh, our guest is uh, constructing over here. Yeah, yeah. It's better than eating a sandwich. It's quieter. Yeah. Okay. Now let's go make a sandwich, though. Want one? No, I'm okay. I'm good. Um. Yeah. Hot dog sandwiches. No, thank you. Uh. So, yeah. So, cleaning space is important. Um. It's uh, it's a hard thing to leave the Earth as it is, and you know, without without having more, uh, without having less, I guess, places to launch that aren't potentially so messy. Then. Right. This is also, I mean, like even our our current ISS inhabitants are are putting put in increasing danger. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, I don't know, like, what happens when, like, does it just like are, are we just talking like little pieces of metal, or is it like in general, yeah. I mean, like, pieces of satellites that, okay. that are still in like, space. Like yeah. Just chunks of metal mm-hmm. floating around. Okay. And it's uh, more of a problem with speed. Like, if it wasn't moving, it wouldn't really matter so much? Yeah, well, I mean, it's still, like, if, if say, one hit the, uh, like, a, a telescope mirror or something, oh, yeah, like, okay. that would just, that would be a huge issue. Mm-hmm. Um, things like that. Like, I think yeah. the Hubble had an issue with, like, a lens getting hit by a small meteorite. They had mm-hmm. to replace it. That was a very expensive uh, or I always thought the Hubble lens was just broken when it started, but I don't remember. Oh, that maybe that was it. <laughs> Hubble, probably. Yeah, it's all about okay. trouble. Um, Hubble trouble. See what I did? Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh huh. All right. Um. Hmm. 
Well, so I found some interesting stories, too, and one of those would be robot DNA. And, you know, normally we don't mix robots and DNA together, but um, a few years ago, I, there were some studies or research going on for, instead of using binary, you know, just bits, we could use the DNA particles, or DNA I don't know, the, molecules, I guess. Yeah, the uh, ACTG. Yeah, because T goes to you. Um, and, uh, you know, that's an interesting thing, too. But so somebody made this kind of, uh, I don't know if it's like a protein or what it precisely is, but essentially what it can do is it can target specific cancerous cells. And, it, you know, it doesn't seem like uh, that's such, such a new uh, discovery, but maybe because it's actually using DNA to, uh, I don't know... Um, do what it does again it must be a protein of some sort but apparently it can avoid being destroyed by the body on its own because it's made out of dna presumably from the same person yeah, yeah. um it it sounds like it's sort of a, a a capsule that is closed by these uh, um aptamers i guess is the name which are uh proteins that recognize different cell different mm-hmm. types of cells and so when it runs into one of those types of cells the capsule opens um and releasing whatever makes you wonder how it released. does that like it can't some, do it can't do receptor. like get cell type returns true <laughs> right not obviously not uh, a computer science interface going on here man i like some, my apis to be like that <laughs> some uh probably some sort of uh chemistry interaction mm-hmm. or um, the like the receptor is the the right shape so that right right they like well it's interesting that it can target specific cells too so that it needs to know about the cancer before it can stop it obviously but yeah. if it can do it without radiation or without uh, you know poisoning the host this is, could be a viable solution for that right yeah there's been a lot of focus on uh, cancer treatment methods that don't destroy cells besides what needs to be destroyed which wonder what what happens good. once the thing has closed like once it's locked over the target cells what it what happens to it does it just like fall fall somewhere and, just... and it probably just like decays and yeah i mean like broken up same as anything mm-hmm. else so yeah it's it's an interesting thing i hope they uh do more on that it's uh good mm-hmm. when they make breakthroughs in uh dna usage i've been uh i've been known to run what is it uh folding at home mm-hmm. it's a uh Kind of like a SETI thing, but instead of using uh, the SETI data to look for aliens, you're looking for protein patterns. And so you can use a distributed computer system to model those. And so I've been doing that sometimes. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Yep. On, an, on, a, on another note, something that we may talk about later today involving the Kepler uh, mm-hmm. satellite, uh, There's they release Kepler data and have people look for variations in star luminosity that could signal uh, exoplanets. Mm-hmm. Orbiting those stars, so similar, they they distribute the data, crowdsource right. it essentially, which yeah. is uh, becoming a popular thing as far as like large and, you know, data source projects. You know, it's it's cheaper than getting your own server farm, mm-hmm. right? It's free. Yeah, there's a lot of cost and a lot of troubleshooting. Yeah, especially when you're using recycled hardware. So instead of doing all of that yourself, you just set up a server to coordinate the data, and then you just make all your nodes do it. Mm-hmm. Distributed around nodes the world. being. Everybody. People staring at a screen looking for little changes in brightness. Uh, no, honestly, all it is is 
a screensaver. That, I mean, folding at home is a oh, screensaver. I'm, yeah, I'm talking about the, the Kepler. People actually oh. like look for oh, that's look through these images, right? Yeah. But the, apparently, there's there have been over like five thousand, I think, possible ones. And then, so what they do is they take this data and it gets looked at by all these people, and they point out possible mm-hmm. um, and then stars somebody with goes exoplanets. To confirm. And then the Kepler satellite will confirm that. Okay. So far, I think there have been about twenty six that have been confirmed, like absolutely confirmed. Mm-hmm. Or no, no, no. More so are they looking at solar systems in our galaxy, right? Um, I, I believe so. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we're, we're probably going to talk more about that <laughs> later on the show. Um, for now, though, I think Ryan has another news topic. Yeah, I do. So have you ever heard of a hypernucleus? Now, this is the first of I've ever heard of this. I have never heard of a hypernucleus. I have, I, I, it never occurred to me that there could be something other than a nucleus for uh, a, a particle, such as an atom. Well, apparently physicists have proven me wrong yet again, and the normal force is still working, so that is even a bigger problem. But this hypernucleus only lives around 10 to the 10, or 10 to the negative 10 seconds before decaying, so it's essentially non-existent. Um, so I don't really know how to explain it other than that it contains a hyperon, and this hyperon is something with three quarks, and it has a strange quark in it, and... Again, it means nothing to me because I don't really know how quark works. But I know you're in some fancy physics, and you probably do. So I don't know where they found this either. Uh, but it seems quite interesting uh, that you can just find uh, a, a super new particle. You know, so, around. yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. Um, I guess just sort of to explain what was found. Um, it's a nucleus, like Ryan said, with a... Uh, Assortment of neutrons and protons. Any any matter that you find is that's that's what we know it to be in a nucleus. And each proton and neutron is made up of three quarks. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's uh, multiple different flavors of quarks and spins and right, yes. things like that. I remember. And uh, um, the, one of those uh, flavors, I believe, is a strange quark, which is not usually, f- which is not in. Not one of the quarks that makes up protons and neutrons, mm-hmm. um, and so that's what I- that's what this hyperon is is a right. is a essentially like a proton with one of the quarks being a strange quark okay. instead of a charm quark, whatever the mm-hmm. other different. Well, so I'm are. I'm going on to read this article, and so this this six something H, you know, it's like some kind of hydrogen, I guess. Hypernuclei. The results could shed light on strange matter, which is hypo- you know like thought to exist at the center of ultra-dense neutron stars. You know, there's stars that are really tiny and super dense. Mm-hmm. And uh, they they hope to in- investigate the strange matter further by producing more of these strange nuclear systems. And that's kind of interesting. I don't really... I've never heard of strange matter either. I wonder what it yeah. does differently. I mean, other than have strange quarks. Well, so this isn't... Um, I'm also just reading the article now. Probably should have... And uh, don't, don't worry about Whatever. it. We're doing our research now, yeah, live. So, so no, you all know that we actually like read about these things because we're doing it while you're listening. Um, Is that a good thing? I don't know. Maybe. Oh. So. Um, There's some strange matter over there. <laughs> it's environmentally friendly. It's okay. That's what they all say. Don't let any sparks near that. That's what I was thinking. Um, Spark revolution. Right. Yeah. So uh, the the hi, the hypernucleus that was found is, uh, this particular one is the hydrogen six lambda hypernucleus, which means that it's got 
six particles, which when you think about it is odd because hydrogen only, usually only has one. Right, and an electron, proton. And that's it. Right. Well, yeah. the nucleus has one particle. Mm-hmm. That's what makes it hydrogen. Yeah. You think of, oh, well, you know, it's got two protons. Well, that would make it helium. Yeah. However, well, actually, just kidding. Yeah. It does only have one proton. Uh-huh. I was going to say something stupid because if it had two protons, it would be helium. Yeah. Um, but it has one proton, and it also has four neutrons, which is odd. Yeah. Hydrogen doesn't usually have any. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's I'll, that special. There, are, yeah, yeah. There are ice, like it's it's an isotope of hydrogen, mm-hmm. sort of, because it's got those four neutrons, the one proton, and then this lambda hyperon. That which, is ridiculous. I don't. Is that what, what that character means, lambda? Yeah, that's a that's a lambda. So it's the six hydrogen six lambda is like the the type of hydrogen. That is not how you write lambda. Well, it, it's probably. Like a like missing the little tail. Seriously, I, I do not care. That's not you, how you typeset correctly. Uh, well, anyways, if if you wanted to see what Ryan's complaining about, you can look at the show notes. Yeah, I I like my typesetting to be correct. Um, oh god, I side track. Um, I was reading XKCD. It's an excellent web comic that you should all check out. Uh, and there was a, a funny comic about uh typesetting. In typesetting, the space between letters it's called kerning. Is kerning, right? And so XKCD had this joke where if you want to, um, if you really hate someone, what you should do to them is teach them how to recognize bad kerning because it's everywhere. And it's, the spaces between letters are different, uh, for different sets of letters and Mm -hmm. things. So if you have say a V and an A, I think is the classic example, uh, good kerning, usually the V overlaps the A a little bit because they're both slanted and it just looks better. It's more pleasing to the eye. Um, Versus if you have bad kerning and there's like a giant space between two vertical letters, it looks silly. And, uh, anyways, end of the sidetrack about typesetting, and back to the Lambda Hyperon, which... I think it just self-decayed. Okay. Yeah. I think that's over. Yeah. All right. My, my, my hyperneurons, hypernuclei don't last long. Well, so you know, um, we've talked about the Higgs boson a little bit, and... You know, it's a it's the mysterious particle that uh, should uh, you know prove what makes gravity, I guess, or makes mass. I mean, and uh, if we find the particle, then that's great. We actually know what we're talking about. If we don't, then well, there goes sixty years of our life. Well, yeah. If we, if we don't, we need to find out that we sixty years of our know life. it's not there. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, it's hard to prove something's not there unless you find it. That almost doesn't make sense. <laughs> but you have the feeling that it does, right? Maybe. <laughs> okay. So, well, so apparently Fermilab is insisting that they're going to talk about it in a few months or soon about it. Mm-hmm. Apparently, they just, you know, thought, well, maybe we should analyze our data now and then we'll say something interesting when it when we're <laughs> There's ghosts in the studio. What is going it, on? No, 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 no. It's the rat in the wall. The rat. Oh, it's the ooh. Oh, no. Don't go into any dark caves and fall into a hole with any oh, strange is. people. Oh. No, no, no. My tower, my tower, my tower. Oh. <laughs> oh, now you disturbed the dog. Don't worry um, about it. Yeah, so... Well, yeah. Fermilab says that it uh, might have found some data about the Higgs boson... People are saying that since the LHC went online, Large Hadron Collider that yep. is in uh, Switzerland, um, the Fermilab hasn't really had a chance of uh, approaching the the power that they can generate, um, mm-hmm. so they won't get the same data 
which people thought would be necessary. Um, well, so what I'm reading here is that the Higgs has a mass of around... How do you measure mass on electron volts? But whatever. Uh, Einstein's mass energy... No. Relation. Incorrect. You measure mass in mass units, not volts. Right, but E equals mc squared. You so. do not measure things in volts if you want to talk about their mass. You, you do, though. I like don't... The, the mass of... What is that dog? Like 14 billion quadrillion electron volts? No, it's 600 no. hertz. Yes. You measure <laughs> dog weight in, in hertz. hertz. <laughs> yes. Okay. No. That's right. Well, no, so... Uh, the Higgs boson has uh, around 125 giga-electron volts of mass, and the, uh, what do you call that, the, the tetra, tevatron, I guess that's what they call it. Tevatron. Yeah, yeah. Well, apparently, it only could identify the Higgs boson with some three-sigma degree of certainty, and this apparently isn't good enough because everybody else has agreed on the five-sigma degree of certainty, and, well, I guess that's not good enough for some people. Right. Well, so sigma is standard deviation. Is that what they call it? Why wouldn't they just typeset that in, then? Because it's, no. nobody knows what that little O with the line I is. I would have known what that meant. Nobody else. Anyways, this is Scientific American. It's science for Americans. Oh! <laughs> hey, we came for my B. <laughs> um, that's right. Yep. I so, the... Uh, I don't know. What was I... What were we talking the about? The Higgs boson just left. It's gone. Okay, right. Yeah. Didn't have enough energy to... Mm-hmm. Uh, it couldn't appear. Right. And even this article talks about quarks. Yeah. And if you know the mass of the W and top quark, you'll know the Higgs mass perfectly. That's what it says. I yeah. I, something to do with the uh, standard model yeah. for I'm, I'm ignoring that article now. No <laughs> one counts measuring mass and volts. Uh, that's what everyone does. No, they do not do that. It was uh, incorrect usage. Okay. Well, next topic. So, turns out that uh, our... So your little matches over there don't make a difference. In what sense? Sam will tell you. Oh, so um, Earth's ice is melting... Earth, Earth's ice is melting um, less rapidly than we previously thought. And uh, no thanks to so- Matt's Fire um, habits. Can I say something on a side note? So, um, do you know how there's very little ice around here right now? Because it's summertime in Minnesota and winter. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I put a bunch of uh, ether on top of this ice pile, and I lit it on fire, and it wouldn't melt through the ice. It was burning really well. Um, it got the plants next to the ice pile. They um, regrow, you know. Hopefully. Um, just didn't melt. Like, it was just burning on top of the ice without going through. It's like burning oil on water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's pretty fun, though. Mm-hmm. So there's a lake down over that way. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna okay, argue because okay. I don't know where anything is here. By the train. They found a large there. surplus of oil a little while ago. Uh, anyway, so do we know why the ice is melting less than we thought it was? Um. Well, I I uh, I think it's due to the lack of like really accurate data that we had before when previous estimates were made. Melting ice raised the sea levels worldwide by an average of 1.48 millimeters. Woohoo! Right, well, that's... that's A lot. Worldwide? I know, 70, I know. 70% of the Earth's surface? What is that, like, 14 electron volts? <sighs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Anyways. Um, so, if you... 
that translates to about 1,000 cubic miles, according to someone else's math that I just read. Um, which, is, which is roughly eight times the water volume of Lake Erie. Um, so that's a lot of water. Well, it is a lot of water, actually. Quite a lot of water. It makes me wonder how big the planet is. Cause, Not really. Because if you could multiply 1.48 millimeters by some number to get that much water, it's a big planet. Yeah. Well, yeah. we know how big it is. Pretty, I think. Do we? Yeah, I think so. Have you experienced it? I have flown... Okay. You cheater. Yeah. Anyways, so that's a lot of water. Um, and if you think about the fact that ice is higher volume than water, mm-hmm. that's a lot of ice. That's more. Yeah. That's even more ice. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously a big issue. Glaciers are melting, things like that, blah, blah, blah. Uh, poor data was collected, or not in incomplete data contributed to our earlier estimates, um, and now NASA's got, like, some new satellite system called GRACE, um, which is, like, the glacial something. I don't know. Hold on. Wikipedia. Now, you know, I, I don't know too much about this kind of stuff, but this just doesn't... I don't know. How do you mess that up? What? Mess up? Well, well, how can you say, like, oh, everything is melting, and then, turns out, nothing is. Well, no, I mean, it, we're still losing, uh, like, ice mass, because obviously that, that figure right, was correct, right. the 1,000 cubic whatever meters or something. And in the last 10 years, the Himalayan mountains haven't lost any ice. Like, they've been, people have been, researchers have been monitoring that to monitor ice loss in the mountains surrounding there, too. And um, Oh, it's 1.48 millimeters per year. Cool. Per year. Okay, that makes more sense. Those. Per year is a lot bigger than just since some time. Yeah, so the high Asian mountain ranges such as the Himalayas were found to account for just 4 billion tons of ice melt per year, which might sound like a lot, but some previous less exact measurements had put that number at upward of 50 billion tons per year, which is a big miscalculation, misjudgment. Like I said, how do you mess that up? Well, incomplete data. I mean, like, there wasn't this new GRACE satellite, I guess it's called the, uh, stands for the Gravity Recovery and Climate Experiment. Satellite? NASA. I don't, know what, I don't know how you recover gravity, but anyways. Um, mostly climate experiment part, and uh, so now we have more accurate data of those things. Well, that's good. It's important to recognize the fact that sea levels are still rising in dramatic fashion. And it's important to realize that if you have to light a fire, make sure you light it with green light matches. Because when the fire burns green, the ice doesn't melt. <laughs> oh, if you had warned me, I would have muted you. No, I'm not going to edit that out. Because <laughs> okay. people love when people sneeze. <laughs> okay. Well, if it'll, if it'll get us more viewers. Um, oh, you should ask Diamond for some money advertising. What is it? Matt, the article Matt was talking about with the, the less, no ice loss in the Himalayas, which is different than this article that I just read. It's from NASA. They have a, they've been saying that they've been wrong for every estimate every time you've mentioned them the show. What? You said that they've been wrong with everything so far, the show. Like, all they're estimating, like, oh, it's going to cost this much to build that. Yeah, all their yeah, estimates have been wrong that's, so far. Right, cost estimates. That's and different than their data. Is it? And so, last did you week, just say that their previous measurements weren't good enough, and now they have more accurate new GRACE thing or whatever? Well, no, This the other measurements weren't made mm-hmm. by NASA. NASA just launched this GRACE satellite. And these measurements probably, or this data is being collected by NASA. But you know, last week we talked about how NASA, NASA has so low on money that they had to cut their math department, and they just miss zeros all the time. <laughs> yes, I... 
Yes. Yeah. I don't know. That's just what I read last week. You know, you know when you when you know about a story like that, you should bring it up. Put it in the show notes. I'm building a tower. Okay. Good. Good uh, observation. I didn't agree to that. Uh, Matt's article um, is about glaciers at very high altitudes in the Himalayas. So low altitude glaciers okay, have yeah. been losing a lot more ice mass than high sense. altitude glaciers, and so they're saying that this negligible quote unquote loss of ice is almost is equivalent to zero. I hate when people do that. It's like it's small, but it's not zero because it's not zero. Well, it's like taking the limit, though. No. Yeah. It doesn't does not compute. Anyways, so yeah. right, ice is melting. Be worried about global warming, climate change. Call your congressperson. And use green light matches. Or just don't burn things because you're contributing to global warming. Yeah, I was going to say candles, and it's like, what is the word for this? And I had to read every word on the box <laughs> to find out what these were called. Okay. Yes. Your thought? So, have you ever heard of ice on another planet? Yes. Have you ever wanted to see ice on another planet? Yeah. Well, you can't, because you can't get to other planets. But you might be able to get to a different moon. Because I know there are moons with ice. Have you ever heard of the, the, the moon with, like, an ice volcano? Like, it just spews ice. Uh, oh, oh, yes. Um, mm. It's not Enceladus, is it? I don't know. I was thinking Io, but that's not. No, Io is the one that's... Wait, maybe it is Io. Hold on. You know oh, why it's not? I type in Io and the browser goes to Io 9. Yeah, that's also the problem with the, with, the, with them. It's not. You know You know what? It, it, could, it would be funny if it was Io, because Io 9 spews ice. Io is Vulcanus? 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 Yeah. No, I don't think they are, but okay. No, no, the, the planet is spews, like, volcanoes, not ice I, things. I think it's either, it might be Europa. Mm. Although, Well, maybe okay, not. so I know that there are these moons that can spew, and they could potentially support life, because if they have ice to spew, they might have water, just, you know, to be liquid. And if they have water, there might be life. Right, so... Um, I think the moon that you're talking about... Hold on. Let me find the name. because. Um, so, Saturn has 62 moons. What? That's gone up from when I was in 6th grade. <laughs> Only 53 of them have formal names. How do you... I don't know what that means. I feel like some of them are just like large objects in the ring structure. Uh. But uh. whatever. Maybe not. So, Enceladus is the one that you're talking about. There was only um, 32 when I was in 6th grade. Really? I think so. Are you sure that's not like Jupiter or something? Well, that book I had when I was in 6th grade probably was like... Ancient. Oh, that's true. Um, right, because we didn't even know about, like, series yeah. or any of those. Yeah. So, um, right, so... Uh, Especially Taylor's. Math jokes. Gotta love them. Uh, <laughs> so, the moon Enceladus, yeah, it, it spews... It has these ice geysers that um, actually contribute to uh, Saturn's uh, ring formation. Mm. Um, I didn't know it made part of the ring. Yeah. So those, those ice crystals, yeah, Well... Since we only have discovered a few of the moons of Saturn, have you ever discovered an exoplanet? Personally? No. Mm. Would you like to? <laughs> yes. Okay. That'd be cool. One day soon you will. I hope so. Because so far we found 26 new ones. Not personally. Just in general. Are we that far in the show already? Yes. Okay. Wow. Um, yeah. So, Ryan is talking about the... Thing that I mentioned earlier, the 26 new confirmed exoplanets um, through the Kepler program. Uh, so, as I said, the these aren't the only exoplanets that have been confirmed. These are just like the newest of them. 
that moves the number of Kepler confirmed exoplanets from 35 to 61. Uh, mm. And interestingly enough, these 26 planets come from only 11 planetary systems, which means that far more stars than we had thought uh, have uh, our multi-planet systems. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, like, has one, why not two? Right. And this is just the beginning, pretty much. I mean, Kepler Kepler just started, um, like, figuratively. I mean, like, not, like, actually yeah, just but, started. But, but yeah. Uh, and, like I mentioned earlier, there's all those possible exoplanets that have yet to be confirmed. Mm-hmm. Because the confirmation process is, like, So do we know how time. to find an exoplanet? I mean, what what is involved in actually finding it? Like, how do you see one with a telescope so far away? Um... Well, uh, I think that the way uh, that Kepler detects this is from the gravitational influence that planets have uh, among, like, amongst the the, s- the planet system that they're in. Um, so, say that you, sorry, um, so say that you have. Uh, one planet, like a massive planet, pulling on a small planet, it'll change the orbital period of that planet. Mm-hmm. And so this is called transit timing variation, and this is what Kepler measures um, to figure out like the composition of these planetary systems. Interesting. So I, uh, I always thought they were doing something a little bit different. I thought they were measuring the distortion on the sun's rotation or... The sun's wobble. Uh, so that the, might work too, I suppose. Right, so if these if these solar systems are in the same plane as ours, um, which yeah. I think is generally the case in our galaxy, uh, then... That's interesting. When the... Yeah, it seems like the universe is, like, on a plane. Well, our g- oh, galaxies yeah, right. are on a plane. Other galaxies are not. I wonder why that is. Because even our solar system is, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pretty much, yeah. Which is why we want our perpendicular probe. Perpendicular probe. That's, That's right. a good one. Yeah. Title? It could be. Put it in the options. I'll put um, it in the options. So... Uh, yeah, the, what Ryan was talking about, um, is when, well, so earlier in sort of the exoplanet search, um, people would look for, uh, massive planets, like on the scale of Jupiter. Yeah, huge. That would have enough gravitational influence on the star in their system that it would wobble from side to side. And that also means that these huge planets had to be a lot closer, and that would put them Outside of the climate range. Right, the habitable most. zone yeah. of the star. So it um, wouldn't have mattered anyway. This was, I think, they, they looked for this because it was thought that um, such giant, like, giant planets like mm-hmm. Jupiter had, generally had companion right. planets the size, around the size of Earth. Mm-hmm. And so that was, before we had Kepler, that was, like, one of the m- main ways to look for um, these Earth-sized exoplanets. Uh, and, uh, <coughs> um, that it's all right. Uh, so now the Kepler uses, uh, a similar strategy, but for smaller planets. And this is where when the planet passes in front of the sun, there's a decrease in the observed luminosity. And so we can, first of all, time the orbital period of the planet and also, detected by um, looking for luminosity changes from the star, which is that kind of like the folding at home thing. People look at this data and look at pictures over a series 
of days, whatever, um, and look for changes in star variations that could, that are large enough to sing- signal um, a planet of the requisite size. Um, yeah, and so that's how they like detect the planets, and then, like we said earlier, they use that transit timing variation to figure out other data yeah. about the composition mm-hmm. of the systems. That's 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 what I remember reading about back in the back in the day. Right. So I just uh, I was bored, and I just tried to find what the force of gravity was between Jupiter and the Sun, and I don't know what this means. So good luck doing that. What? Um, that doesn't really mean anything. Three point three eight times ten to the thirty-five newton meters. What does that even mean? That means that there's a there's a. Oh come on, Wolfram! You cannot measure things in electron volts. <laughs> what is it measuring in electron volts now? This the thing. So like you know the the, the gravitational the force of gravi- gravity uh, equation. You know G big G M M over R squared. Oh, maybe that's what I did wrong. Hold on, hold on. I for- I did potential wrong thing. It's easy to mess up, you know, square or not. Oh, did you use the keyboard for the solar mass symbol? No, I don't have pro. Don't have pro trial yet. Yeah. Never mind. Okay, I fixed it. It's no longer Newton meters. It's an, it, it doesn't mean anything. It's that's, not well. That's, that's work. Yeah, that, that wouldn't have. That, that's why it didn't make sense to me. Right. Okay, so apparently the force of gravity between Jupiter and the thingamajig called the Sun is four point five three times ten to the twenty three newtons. That is a lot of newtons. Uh, I don't know. I guess it's, that's a lot of newtons. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I. It's weird. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, uh, continuing our sort of discussion about exoplanets and things like that, one of the um, reasons that... Okay, well, I found what I was looking for. <laughs> okay. Which is... So, what I was looking for is I was looking for the acceleration, you know, like 9.81, you know, meters per second, that's on Earth. Well, so I wanted to know what Jupiter's, you know, acceleration number was, like, around Jupiter. And so that would be 2.28 times 10 to the negative 7, which is weird. What? Yeah. Oh, that's the gra- That's the field, you know? Like, that's just the field. Gravitational field. Acceleration. So, gravitational acceleration on Earth is 9.8 meters per second squared. Mm-hmm. About. And you're saying that on Jupiter, it's... That's what Warframe says. Okay, hold on. That's not right, because I remember it being, like... More? That's what I thought. Set. I uh, can't remember how many times that of Earth. Oh, smoking a uh, match. It's uh, a so, way to smoke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You and your noisy box. Hmm. Um, okay, so we're going to say gravitational constant. Yeah, the Wolfram's changed color in the past week. Somebody puked on it. Mm. Or Diamond, the Wait, green light matchmakers green? have That's... sponsored Wolfram Alpha. Honestly, I like the green better because it's not as, like, no, air in your like. face. That's why I hate the LastPass. Honestly, like LastPass cannot. Their website should not be red. You know, it looks like a scare, like an antivirus kind of scare thing. Red. Oh, alert! Mm. Ship imploding. So, the gravitational acceleration is uh, gm over r squared, right? Yeah. So that's what I used. Big. Let's see what my Wolfram Alpha gets. Well, I used big G. Is that right? Yeah, the Newtonian gravitational constant. Big G. I just typed in the word gravitational constant. Yeah, that's what I did too. Um, which gives me twenty six point four eight meters per second. Wow, squared. bloody crap! Wait, what? Hold on. Oh, oh, I'm at... I'm being stupid. Hold on. What? What is your distance? The 
the Jupiter, radius of Jupiter. Okay, that's... I left it in for my previous equation. Distance from Jupiter to the sun <laughs> makes a big difference. <laughs> okay. Okay. So if you're at the sun, yeah, you that's, feel... Yeah, that's really that what I wanted to know. So, so, imagine how big... I mean, that that 2.28 times 10 to the negative 7 is essentially none, right? It's essentially zero. I know you don't like that. No. It, if you take the limit, it's essentially zero. Yeah. Like, uh, this iPod exerts more force on Jupiter. Anyway... It's eight gigs. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who don't know, gigs is how you measure force. <laughs> it is. <laughs> anyway, so imagine how big, uh, you know, one of these exoplanets that were gaseous, that were like Jupiter, would have to be, or how close they would have to be in order to, you know, affect the sun in any meaningful way. Right. Well, I mean, hold on. What are you laughing at? So, it turns out... That's not that funny. There's a crater on the moon named Beer. <laughs> and so our our guest was uh, mm-hmm. chuckling to himself. We had to pause the show to uh, see what he was laughing about. That's not that funny, though. I'm only laughing profusely because it's not that funny. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. So, um... Okay, let's return to whatever we're talking about, because I am so, so gone. Except gaseous exoplanets. Right, right, right. Um, so... Yeah. Yeah. Um, continuing this discussion a little bit on a, on another note, uh, these exoplanets are being looked for because we want to move. That's a little bit like a like a future concern. We we're not really near being able to move quite yet, mm, too bad. especially to planets this far away. Um, but it could this data could assist us in the search for extraterrestrial life. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple different ways that we're looking for it. This is one of them, um, looking for planets that could support life as we know it, carbon-based life forms, um, which is why we look for planets in the habitable zone as far as distance from their sun um, and around the mass and radius of Earth because we know then that the gravity right. would be too heavy for complex mm-hmm. life forms so we're to evolve. looking for almost identical sections. We're looking for Earth-like to... planets. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, Another another search for extraterrestrial life is being uh, performed by SETI. Right, and I mentioned that earlier. The, the search this, for extraterrestrial yeah, intelligence. Yeah, and so they, they uh, essentially just listen for radio signals and then Broadcast they, our own as well. Yeah, and then they analyze them and try to look for patterns that... Would look, indicate intelligent life. That look like they're somewhat intelligent, which would be what? What would a good signal be? Um, I, I think that uh, SETI is looking for... Uh, patterns, mm-hmm. any so, kind of repetition, kind of thing, right? Any anything that could signal uh, a non-natural source, right? Um, it like seems that. like it's hard to define what that is, though. It is. I, I'm sure that if you were to say go to the Wikipedia page for SETI, but you know what's funny that we don't go to the SETI page for information on how SETI works. We go to a third party. Do they have a page? I don't know. I doubt it. Looking for SETI. SETI.org. Of course they do. They're too poor. It's .org. Does that cost like 99 cents a month? (laughs) Yeah. $10 a year. Good work. Nobody pays for domains monthly. That would be $12 a year. I rubbed it down. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways. So SETI um, has actually a pretty nice looking website. I kind of like it. I'm so pleased. Uh, So... Ooh, Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan's one of my favorite people, for those of you um, hmm. who don't know. I've never met him. Neither have I. Hmm. He's dead now. Although, one of my other favorite people, Neil deGrasse Tyson, is quite a bit like Carl Sagan. Except and he's in, not dead. Except in 
deleting planets and being nice. The Pluto debate aside, um, well, not really a debate anymore, it's just people complaining. Yeah. Uh, at least he has friends now, okay? Pluto okay. didn't fit in before. Okay, okay, I see where you're going. I thought you were talking about Tyson. <laughs> <laughs> Um, right. So, uh, I, let's see. I, SETI Quest, maybe that's it. Um, or maybe it would be under SETI 101. I don't know. Wikipedia page is easier to navigate. So, oh, there's a SETI at home thing, too. Like, this is what we're talking about. Yep, that's what I've used. Um, which, anybody who's listening has spare processing time, do these things. They're important. They're, they're, and it's really easy. Essentially, you get a little screensaver that shows you stats while you're going... Yeah, and you know it works. You don't you have could, to do anything. You could be. I mean, the, if, you're, if you're leaving your computer on at night, you might as well do it. Yeah. Also, you could be like the uh, extra processing power required to. Find and then you know you you life. might just get like three dollars when they find the aliens because you did it. Maybe. Yeah, and then NASA will or be reborn. No money at all because that's probably what would happen. Yeah. <laughs> um. So yeah, SETI like I said three dollars. <laughs> I aimed low. Wow! If you actually, if you look at the screenshot for SETI at home, it's kind of a nice looking uh, screensaver. Like a 3D signal Is that the, uh, display. Yeah, yeah. They um, they do a great job with that. I've used it um, on the Linux, and you know, because it's a server, it's not doing anything when right. I'm not here, and it works great. I, if you're looking for something to do with those uh, extra computers, man, <laughs> yeah, I'm getting ready for it. Nice. Yes, yeah. and I, so I've alternated between SETI. I've also done prime factorization and um, folding at home. But yeah, yeah, it's yeah. good cuz. Uh. We could put a link to some of those actually in the show yeah, yeah, description absolutely, if any of you absolutely. would like to check those out. How, where would we find out about how SETI works? I don't think you do. Mm, I didn't know it was run out of Berkeley. I, I don't know. There's a, It's weird because SETI is, just stands for Search for Extraterrestrial Life, Intelligence rather. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's just like a thing. And so there have been multiple SETI programs. But currently, there is a SETI program that uses a telescope array in the desert in Nevada, I believe. Um, And that's the specific thing that I was referring to earlier with, like, the searching for the radio signals. I mean, like, that is is what people do. Right. But that was, like, the specific thing I was referring to. Um, I'm not sure. I don't, like, I don't know what their thing is. Well, uh, so I just found something, and this is the near-time persistency checker from SETI at home. And so I don't really know how this works, but essentially what it says is that these pages are what the you know distributed units, the distributed nodes, have thought to be interesting enough for somebody to professionally look at them. So apparently they ha- these have enough repetition and enough interesting data in them that you could look at them. And so they come with the, the raw data numbers... They also come with a sky plot, and the sky plot is a picture of where it was taken, uh, you know, in the um, or where the signal was, you know, attuned to in the you know sky, I guess. So it is pretty cool. I'll put that in the show notes. So, just I don't even know what I was talking about. That giant telescope array in the desert. I can't find anything about it, but I'm pretty sure it was a thing. It, it is. Thing. It is. It's the. Isn't it in New Mexico? In New Mexico. It's yeah. like the main. It's the new main one. Thing. Yeah. Right. But I can't find anything about it. Don't worry about it. Whatever. Anyways, um, so this, I was trying to segue into a discussion about um, Drake's equation. I like that Just idea. to mention mention it in the show. Um, so this is a, an equation proposed by Francis Drake, 
who was a uh, snake was a professor Darn. at the University of California Santa Cruz. Um, he studied astronomy, astrophysics, uh, and he came up with an equation for estimating the number of civilizations in our galaxy with which communication might be possible at any given time. Um, and this equation, which we will provide a link to in the show descriptions, uh, is uh, has a, multiple different factors which are all multiplied together. It's essentially just the, the probability of a number of different requirements for um, communication to be possible, and you just multiply those probabilities together to f- get a, like an end Mm-hmm. Result. So, what um, are some of the components of this mythical number? So, this takes into account the rate of star formation per year in our galaxy. How do you even calculate that? It's an estimate. PBS has put together a fantastic Drake equation calculator, so I'll put that in the show notes for you guys. It is pretty nice to be able to plug in the numbers without actually having to do work. Yeah. So, so a uh, good estimate, I think, is. Uh, so the estimates used by Drake and his colleagues when they were when they were um, doing this, which is uh, well, this is maybe the numbers used by them, mm-hmm. uh, is so the rate of star formation would be ten per year, ten stars formed per year over the life of the galaxy. Okay. Um, and if we said that half of all the stars formed will have planets, mm-hmm. and that each of these have on average two planets. Um, capable of developing life, which is, uh, and all of these numbers people have put up different estimates for because obviously we don't know them. Um, so anyways, the, we have two stars, or ten stars per year, half of these stars will have planets, and for every star with planets, two of these planets will be capable of developing life. Um, and out of those capable of developing life, 50% 50% will develop life, um, and 1% of that life will evolve to be intelligent, uh, and 1% of that intelligent life will evolve to be able to communicate uh, between the stars, which is how we would detect it, uh, or how we would communicate. And so those factors that I just listed um, are the... Uh, fraction of stars that have, or the rate of star formation, fraction of stars that have planets, uh, the number of planets that can support life, the fraction that actually of those life-supporting planets that actually go on to develop life, the fraction of the developed life that becomes intelligent, and then the fraction of those intelligent civilizations that uh, are capable of communication. Um, and then this, there's another factor, which is how long civilizations last, which mm-hmm. is our biggest problem now. <laughs> right. Um, I think is one of the m- most, the, the hardest to estimate because, I mean, like, we we haven't been around very long. Um, mm-hmm. We've had some close calls, I guess, uh, with Definitely. destroying ourselves. Uh, the, the mutually assured destruction, Cold War, uh, people, primitive peoples killing each other and stuff like that. And earlier tonight, even. What? Earlier tonight. Earlier tonight, yeah. yes, giant fire, explosive fireballs. Yeah, um, we were so daring. Yeah, and so this last factor, the length of time for which um, any civilization capable of communication um, 
as actually releasing signals into space. So that's how we would find them, communicate with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you take all these into account uh, and you multiply them together, you get an estimate of the number of civilizations in our galaxy with which communication might be possible um, at this time. And uh, um, one Drake's initial estimate, I think, according to Wikipedia, was about 10. Okay. Um, Isn't that... Seem kind of pessimistic. Yes. Okay. Uh, in Carl Sagan's Cosmos series, uh, he gave a, a couple different um, uh, numbers. He did an example where you have really low values, right. you're being pessimistic, and you get like 10, I think. And then if you are, or you get like 2, something like that. And then if you raise just a couple of those numbers a little bit to higher estimates, like the fraction of uh, life or of planets where life can evolve, mm-hmm. can arise, and it does arise. If you just raise that fraction just a little bit, you get a much higher number right. of planets. Well, I'm looking at the Drake equation itself, and it's all multiplication. There's no like adding. Yeah, and there's no like exponentials or anything that could be like logarithmically related either. Like it's all just semi-linear. Right. And this is this is an estimate, yeah. but it's. I mean, it seems to take into account most of the factors that we would expect need to be. Well, these would, these would be the most basic, broad, you know, broad spectrum factors that would be involved. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, current estimates. There's a there's a section on Wikipedia about current estimates. I'll just give you um, a quick overview of the numbers. So, for the rate of star creation, NASA and the ESA estimate that star formation in our galaxy is about seven per year. Uh, the fraction of those that have planets is 40%, um, of the known stars have known planets. Uh, but that could be an underestimate. Well, I think it's interesting that on the Wikipedia page it says there's two planet, or, you know, this one, one estimate is that current estimates, as you said, was 2.3, right? Um... Communicating that, civilizations? It's on the Wikipedia page, I don't know. Where, which, which, Current uh, estimate. For what? The thing we're talking which about. Which parameter, though? I'm, I'm just oh, uh, about to... just if... Uh, uh, I don't know. Historical. It's what? it's the two, 2.3 community civilizations oh, oh, in our so galaxy at any for, time. Yeah, so the... The current estimate for N, which is the yeah. number, right? Right. So just and the I total. Think, uh, no. So now, if it's only two point one three communicative, but on average there's two hundred others that aren't trying to communicate, then that's not nearly as pessimistic as I was initially thinking the situation right. to be. Because, well, you know, when you think about it, not trying that communication clause is what got me. Yeah, yeah. I, that's that's an odd way of of uh, mm-hmm. stating the final number. I think usually it's just given as um, the number of civilizations capable of communication, mm-hmm. um, and that, well, it's interesting that they give you the option to calculate it with trying or not trying. Right. Well, and so the that L, the last number, which is the the period of time um, that civilizations are trying to communicate, is often given as the period of time after between the between when that civilization develops interstellar communication and when it destroys itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so not necessarily taking into account if they were trying to contact us because maybe we're trying to contact them and they're receiving signals. 
um, things like that. Right. So there's a, there are a couple of different ways of looking at each of these parameters. And I think that's that's. Um, I think if you look at not trying to communicate as a separate number, a separate value, your excuse me. The, your, your value of n should be the number of things that are actually around, not the things that are trying to communicate. Yeah. Back to briefly covering the current estimates for each uh, parameter in the equation. Um, the fraction of stars that have planets uh, was estimated to be at around 40% at a minimum, but um, current, like, now that we're developing better t- um, methods and better instruments to detect planets around stars... We're seeing that almost all stars have um, planets. Uh, or new new data suggests that most stars have planets. Mm-hmm. Um, not that all of these are big, like the right size, anything like that. This is just the parameter of fraction of stars that have any type of planet. Right. Um, and the so the the next parameter, the average number of planets that can potentially support life for each star that does have a planet. Um, is uh, also hard to um, like define because we don't have data on enough stars and exoplanets knowing whether or not they support life. So again, uh, just an estimate. Um, and this puts estimates at for n at around or the, the number of. Earth-like stars, I guess, is often taken to mean at around uh, two. Doesn't make any sense. It, hold on. I'm reading about the Fermi paradox. So, let's say, uh, well, this is just one of the parts of the Fermi paradox. I go, there's tons of them. But so, let's say you're an alien civilization, right? Let's suppose you want to see if there's something out there to talk to. Well, what do you think? Do you think there's a lot of them to talk to, or do you think there's not that many to talk to? I think there's a lot of them to talk to. Well, then you would probably talk to them. But you do it for a while and you don't find any. Then what do you think? Well, maybe there aren't any out there. So then you think, okay, well, maybe there aren't any. So then you just stop. So one of the things is that if you assume there aren't any out there, then... You probably won't find them. Then you probably won't find them. But then also the Fermi paradox in, in like general, there's like all these reasons why the Drake equation and then other you know, supporting ideas on why civilizations probably would want to communicate. It go, You know, it has all sorts of arguments. The argument of the Fermi paradox itself is probably, it could be a reason for some civilizations not communicating at all. So of those, you know, extra 200 planets or, you know, civilizations that could, could do stuff, maybe they don't because they just assume that, well, Doesn't there's all this stuff there. that would prevent it from happening, so why bother? Right. So one of those self-fulfilling prophecies. Very much like that. Things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so uh, also, we were talking about Star Trek earlier, right? Briefly. And I, I was looking in the notes down below, and apparently Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek, uh, made his own equation um, for this okay. Drake equation. Let me finish going through the parameters, and then we'll talk about Gene Roddenberry's okay. version. Okay, it's, it's kind of funny. Um, okay, so, so if we take the number of planets that can potentially support life per star that has planets as... Uh, uh, I think two, I guess, is like a... Well, no, just kidding. I don't know. That one's... No good uh, current data is given. Um, so, and then the fraction that actually go on to develop life, um, a team at the University of New South Wales 
hmm. estimated this as greater than 0.13. Wait, wait, what variable is this? This is the fraction of planets that can support life that actually do go on to develop it. Hmm. I would say it's higher than that. I don't know. I'm not, like, a, an expert, but... I, I hope I hope these things are bigger than we expect and that there's tons of them. Right. Well, if you if anyone is uh, wanting a little bit more information, I recommend watching, like, a YouTube clip of uh, that episode of Carl Sagan's Cosmos. He does a good job of giving sort of uh, two different numbers, like a pessimistic number right. and an optimistic number. Um, so, yeah. And then the rest, like we said, the rest of these uh, numbers... Very debatable as far as, like, what estimates should be used. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Anyways, that's the Drake equation. It's, so, it is an interesting equation. It's Yeah, it's very... I, I just... I wanted to mention it because it's sort of using numbers that are completely reasonable. Mm-hmm. You can get a large number of equations that we could... Or a large number of civilizations right. that we could communicate with at this time in our galaxy, which mm-hmm. I, th- I think is cool. I think that's good reason to search for if, uh, if we search for them can we get them to do a podcast i hope so and then they need to some send us some album art <laughs> that's that's what i was thinking um while we were talking about this so what I, this might actually be one of the fermi paradox things is that if we ever communicate with an alien civilization civilization it would be through some sort of electromagnetic wave probably radio waves yeah, right um which can travel that long distance, distance yep. at speed of light mm-hmm Considering the fact that some civilizations, or that most civilizations, might eventually destroy themselves, we would probably never get to meet any of them. Right, unless it unless was we... well, unless it was a civilization that had actually not been stupid enough to to annihilate itself so quickly that it couldn't actually survive in the long term. Right, um, and so then maybe that's another equation, you know, another variable in the layer that yeah. long living civilizations that are actually useful are less likely to are even less likely. Yeah. To last or to survive, I mean. Yeah. So, although I, I would think that the longer a civilization has been around, the less likely it so is to So maybe you need to add that itself. logarithmic exponent in there. I don't know. Get going well, on that. What does Gene it can Roddenberry be have to equation. say? Oh yeah. Yeah. I'd like to have something named after me. I have. A, I have a constant. <laughs> this is true. Yeah. We should make a Wikipedia page. I cannot do that. Dang. Can I? No. Dang. It'll del- be deleted immediately. Oh. Yeah. Um. So I'm reading, I'm reading Roddenberry's equation, and it doesn't mean anything. It's just made-up numbers. Like, it's big F, little f squared, times MGE minus C to the first power times R underscore I to the first power times M equals L over so. It's totally fake. Yeah, I mean, like, I don't even know what those... It, they don't, it doesn't say, right, it but... It says here that it's, it's fake. Yeah, so. sounds good. I like how he raises things to the first power to make it look good. Right, because something raised the first power is itself. Uh, so, uh, about more about extraterrestrial life. Um, <clears throat> there, if any of you have seen the movie Predator, have you seen that? <laughs> no, I don't watch Tom. I have. Matt has. So, the Predator home planet is like a steamy jungle, sort of, and this is why they have infrared eyes. Is because like the um, that's the wavelength that's best able to penetrate like the thick atmosphere mm-hmm. um and so there's a planet newly discovered planet that is uh has similar conditions from what we can tell uh that it might be uh most of the wavelengths that get through the atmosphere are infrared 
and uh, things like other factors that the predator homeland had um, are shared with this habitable planet. Wow. So That's pretty cool. Does it say how far away it is? Um... Mm, no. Okay. I mean, maybe. I, I'm not seeing it right now. Mm. I was just wondering if it's any place we could get to in a lifetime. Maybe. Or five lifetimes. Well, that depends on how fast we're going. Um, not very fast. Right. Right now, not very fast. Um, if we... There's another um, article that mentions... Uh, interstellar travel and how long it would take maybe to get places once we develop um this specific person uh is looking at an, a matter antimatter drive sounds good to me which would if we were to be able to travel at 92 percent the speed of light uh we could get there in 22.4 years in earth or in time and on earth and it would take uh only 6.1 years from the frame of reference of the people right. on board the ship it seems perfectly reasonable. Yeah, I I, uh, I would I would do that. That's good. What are you gonna do for six years? Uh, read Lovecraft. I don't know. Build okay. magic yeah. towers. Yeah I, yeah, I don't I don't know about that. So I was re- you know uh, on this uh, link you put here on the the Predator Planet thing. I'm reading the comments, and so so one of the commenters bring up how does a advanced civilization form in a poor in a metal poor system? So like. On a planet that doesn't have a lot of metal, how could advanced technology arise? So in other words, do you need metal to make a radio to communicate with other planets? Well. People, civilizations. Current, like, recent discoveries, like, in material science, like graphene, um, carbon nanotube, superconducting materials at low temperatures, mm-hmm. um, room temperature superconductors, which are being researched right now, things like that, would indicate that there are ways around that. I, I think, Are they easier? I think that the that viewpoint that metal works the best maybe is because we evolved in a, a metal rich, metal rich right. environment. Yeah. And that's one of those it, there's some sort of bias, there's a name that for it. That makes sense. Um that like the same the same thing it's been considered that possibly we're looking at certain types of exoplanets that would be um that on which carbon based life forms would be able to evolve. Um, because we don't know of any other life. We're carbon-based ourselves. So what if there is uh, sulfur-based life forms? Mm-hmm. Silicon-based life forms, I think, is actually the most like widely believed to be possible mm-hmm. alternative. Um, they could process things fast. Right. Yeah. Yeah, silicon chips. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, I just thought this, this kind of thing was interesting because if a planet... You know, like, let's say, you know, we, ha- we, we have, like, radioactive chunks of uranium, you know, sitting around, right? Well, what if a planet only had amounts of iron and copper and aluminum and, you know, low-level metals? What if they had that, those things, in the amount we have uranium and stuff? What if it was so rare that it could essentially use for just, like, five things and that's it? Mm-hmm. What, what do you do then? Well, say that you have an abundance of carbon, then. Yeah, but can carbon make radio noise? I mean, we don't know how, and I don't. Well, I don't. I, I don't think we have any impressions on how. Right. So I, I don't know that that's necessarily true. I think that we. I mean, like radio noise is generated is our our radio noise is generated by um, signal antennas 
right. a, like a, a electromagnetic wave being set up by, um, a, I don't even know, some like emitting devices. I see. It just seems like maybe it wouldn't work without actual metal, like because that's how electrons work. So you need you need the electrons to go around and spin up, spin up and modulate really quick, and you need actual metal to do that. Or that's- or you need your superconducting piece of paper to vibrate really quick and then do it. But last time I checked, you need something really metal to get there. Oh no, the tower is falling. Being destroyed. Civilization is crashing before my eyes. Oh, how I weep. As opposed to for fake. <laughs> Wait, we don't have to be quiet. No. Because you're just going to edit I, this out. I'm not touching a thing, man. That's, that, we're never doing that again. Never editing, ever. Really? Yeah, I'm going to edit this. Okay. This isn't a heavy edit show. So. Like a hypernucleus. <laughs> you know, when the dog makes a noise, let it happen. It's okay. No, that's a running gag for me now. No, they do it. It's good. Hmm. Our emission of electromagnetic radiation is set up by part electrons moving up and down in an antenna. Yes. Um, and our antennas are made out of metal. However, there are conducting materials that are not metal. What? Hold on. That's what I was like. Like last time I checked, so I typed in the word periodical, and you know what I get from Wikipedia? Periodical literature. What are you looking for? I don't mean periodical. I mean periodic table. So yeah, it's my fault, but it's just kind of funny. So you know, the last time I checked, I don't think that osseum is able to send and modulate electrons, nor is bismuth, or um, you know, even copernicum is kind of useless for that. Uh, last time I checked, I think that the preferred modulating metal is indeed Fe twenty six, or copper. Prefer gold or... You know, any of those things that actually are metal. Aluminum, right, okay. So, there are also conductive gases. Uh, how are you going to get your conductive gases without a pick? You need to mine them. Like, how are you going to make them without some... How do some... you mine a gas with a pick? It's in the ground somewhere. you got to dig a hole. Or, like, walk into a cave. Okay, fine. So, you go into a cave, you get, you get attacked by some other guy who went into the cave. <laughs> Speaking of uh, going into caves to mine gas, I, uh... Experimented with <laughs> experimented with making a, a Minecraft mod, which added yeah, helium that. to the game. You, know, you, you said you were going to blog about that, but you never did. Right. Well, I, I know. know. I understand. You know. Right. Um, so, why is there not a list of... Uh, Radio frequency modulating oh. metals? Because we know the list. It's right there. No, 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 no. Uh, in non-metals. So, sodium chloride solution. Oh, so you're cheating. You're not even using elements anymore. Sodium and chlorine are elements. No, it's a molecule. No, okay, fine. No. Okay. Sodium ion, chlorine cation. Where do you find chlorine sitting around? I don't know. Okay, what am I... Oh, oh, wait. Let me tell you. Hold on. (laughs) Okay, what I'm saying is it all comes back to the point you need metal. In order, I, that's what we think because we did it that way. That's what I'm saying is that these biases. Okay, here one more thing. We, one more thing. Jetpacks. Jetpacks. <laughs> cell phones. <laughs> so jetpacks. Cell phones. 
<laughs> Jetpacks. No cell phone. <laughs> How about? Okay. So, anyways, th- these arguments happen between scientists like us <laughs> all the time. What about zinc? I thought zinc was a uh, metal. Yeah, yeah I, I know. Does it modulate? I I don't know. I don't know either. I hear the um, So, I, I I mean like. Did you get a periodic table that uh, divides it by metals and nonmetals, things like that? I'm using well, webelements.com. It's hard. First of all, I would say it's hard for a planet to be metal poor because so many of the elements are, just are metals. metals. Okay, okay. So, so, so you know, I thought about this, but then if if you're gonna have like a silicon-based life form anyway. Why? Maybe, maybe in order to get a silicon-based life form, you'd need to have a non-metal-rich section of a planet, you know, or uh, you know, a planet in general. Or maybe if you're buying a really young star, you know, maybe uh, or maybe you're in a region of space where not many supernovas have happened, because in supernovas, that's where metals are compressed and that's where they're made, essentially, right? Well, maybe if you haven't been in a region where there's a lot of that happening, maybe you're in a young planet, so young that it's uh, just, you know, light stuff. Okay, so say that you have silicon-based life forms. Silicon, having elements as heavy as silicon would indicate that you probably have aluminum, uh, manganese, oh, just kidding, magnesium, sodium, uh, neon, all those other lighter elements, yeah, yeah, yeah. carbon, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. Um, and aluminum, obviously. Yeah, so you'd have, you'd have one, at least. So... Right, so just because uh, well, I thought a, it was I thought it was only up to twenty, or, or I thought it was only up to copper that they could really just form in a star. I don't remember how it works. So these uh, the stuff we're talking about metallic conducting elements, mm-hmm. non-metallic conducting elements, um, <clears throat> is a, a good good argument. There's a good debate there. I mean, I, I had know. fun. Yeah. By the way, jetpacks. Want to wrap this up? Yeah, sure. Hold on. So, Let's go the do you want to you want to finish up with talking about that the Kardashev scale just so we can get the whole yeah yeah might as well. whole thing out yeah, of the way as well. Um, so you know the biggest uh, the biggest thing with the uh, living through like you know we're talking about the longevity of a life of a civilization, and that's really dictated by this other thing you 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 link to, and it's this uh, right. scale thing. Yeah. So this since is, I don't speak Russian, I can't say that name. I I think it's pronounced Kardashev. It's a uh, it's a scale uh, proposed by a Soviet Russian astronomer named Nikolai Kardashev, hmm. and uh, his original uh, definition of these three scales um, was based on the magnitude of the amount of power available to them. Uh, from, from uh, did you mute me too? No. Magnitude of the amount of power available to them um, from whatever energy sources they might have developed. Uh, and so he defines type 1 as a technolo- technological level close to the level presently attained on Earth. And keep in mind, this was written in 1964. Um and this energy consumption would be at about four times ten to the nineteenth ergs per second. What is an erg? An erg is the energy unit used by astro astronomers and astrophysicists. Uh, I don't know why. 
And the iPod uses gigs. It's, it's, uh, right. It's, um, 100 nanojoules. I don't know, uh, the re- reason behind this is astrophysics uses CGS units, which is centimeters, grams, and seconds. Yes, yes. Versus MKS, which is meters, kilograms, I, I, I and prefer, seconds. I prefer the physics, uh, Right, model. MKS makes sense. CGS doesn't. Astrophysicists think that they're special because they use. No, no, a no. professor was like, no, uh, well, "CGS is what real astrophysicists." No, but I think use. I think the CGS system makes more sense because if you look at the physical size of a meter, then you look at a gram, they're too different, right? Like the size of a gram and the size of a centimeter makes way more sense than a meter and a gram. Right, but MKS m- meter kilogram mm. is I I think I think MKS makes more sense because meter makes more sense than centimeter. No, but like when you no, like but but like earth. when you learn physics, you know, it's in meters, kilograms, kilograms, and seconds, and seconds, but but it's not because everybody just uses grams. But it's I whenever you use a formula, it's for it's, kilograms. yeah, I know, but I mean. It just seems like the unit of base measurement are, are too different, so the, they standardize on that smaller one that makes actual sense. I don't like CGS. Anyways. I, 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 I'm all for it. Let's go. Okay. So, um, so this 4 times 10 to the 19th ergs per second is, would be about um, 4 times 10 to the... Uh, 4 times 10 to the 20... 4 times 10 to the 12th joules per second. What? Wait, what? That doesn't make any sense. Four times ten to the twenty-sixth joules per second um, is the is the normal unit equivalent. Okay. Um, which is a lot. So that's like for an entire planet, right? For the civilization. So you, right. you categorized categorized these. Oh, just kidding. No, four times ten to the twelfth joules per second. Yeah, because one erg is ten times. Don't worry about it. The units don't matter. Okay, whatever. So, well, it, people, that's that's ten four times ten to the twelfth watts, which is like uh, a lot of watts. You know, your sixty watt light bulb. I'm gonna put that in in, in a show note in the future. I'm gonna rant about how I hate problems like this. Okay, well then, so that's type one energy level close to that attained in 1964 on Earth. Mm-hmm. Okay, what's what's type two? Uh, type two would be a civilization capable of harnessing the energy radiated by its own star, um, with energy consumption on the order of four times ten to the twenty-six watts. Hmm. Um, and the right, so that's a sort of a, an order of mag- multiple orders of magnitude higher. Uh, and then type three would be a civilization in possession of energy on the scale of its own galaxy, um, which would be about four times ten to the thirty seventh watts. Um, so you can see these go up quite a bit each time. Orders of magnitudes, like almost a logarithmic scale, as far as how these three types are defined. You have your planetary energy. You have your solar system energy. Or your galactic energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, some other ways to place civilizations into these three different type categories are um, by what methods they use to harness energy. Um, so by Kardashev's original definitions, we are a type one civilization. Right. However, by some of these, by most of the definitions of a type one civilization that have been come up with since then, based on what sort of technologies are available to that civilization, um, we don't quite qualify for type one yet. Mm-hmm. Um, some of these uh, technologies would be um, 
large-scale application of fusion power, which we don't have. We do have nuclear fission And we definitely reactors. don't have antimatter. Right. We don't have antimatter generation, energy generation. Um, we don't have the magnitude of solar energy use sort of described by this type 1 definition. Um, we do obviously have the capability to use, like, solar solar panels, but not... It's not, not efficient. Right. Right. And not a, to the magnitude that... Uh, mm-hmm. Of renewable energy. And then type 2, um, the level where you're harnessing energy on the scale of the civilization's home star is pretty interesting, some of those methods described. Mm-hmm. Um, one, of the, one of them is uh, the Dyson Sphere, or Dyson Swarm, which is essentially an array of solar panels surrounding a star. Incredibly multidimensional. Huge array. Very multidimensional. Right, three-dimensional. Multi-dimensional. Yes. Multi- many. Too yes. many. Okay, so <laughs> that would um, essentially almost completely enclose a star, capture all of its energy output. Um, yeah, that's a I like, very I like, interesting I like, I like another one, like uh, y- using the energy fed into a stellar mass such as a black hole and collect photons emitted by the accretion disk, and that uh, sounds like a lot of work, but it's possible, I guess. How do you d- reduce a black hole's angular momentum? Um, well, uh, this is known as the Penrose process. <laughs> you make it sound like you know. Yeah, I do. Gosh, I you, like learn, you learned so much at the U of M. Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> so, uh, when a black hole is rotating, uh, there's obviously the event horizon, yep. which is a point at which light doesn't escape. Um, and then there is this thing called the ergosphere, which is outside of that on a plane perpendicular to the axis of rotation. Um, And the ergosphere is uh, a area of particles that emits energetic photons due to some processes and stuff. I think we'll just go with that. Uh, it looks really complicated, but I found one of your favorite things, a Kerr black hole. Remember those? Um, from what? I don't think I do. It's the thing that powers your time machine. Oh, yeah. 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 All made up. Mm-hmm. So if particle A enters the ergosphere at a Kerr black hole, it then splits into particle A and B, and then the consequence... Uh, that uh, will be that particle B can access the ergosphere with more energy than particle A while C goes back into the black hole. Okay, what I need to know is how do I take 3.3 terabytes and compress it into 32 bits? That's using not a black what hole? happened. Okay. This will be for a different show. Okay. Um, well, right, so anyways, uh, this is similar to the uh, idea of uh, um, Particle creation, anti or antimatter yeah. creation, mm-hmm. um, on the edge of a black hole, two particles, antimatter yep. and matter, pop into existence. One of them's on the inside of the Schwarzschild radius, one of them's on the outside. Mm-hmm. One of the one on the inside goes away, outside escapes. That's where antimatter, right. we think, most of it comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, because otherwise, antimatter, antimatter right. and matter immediately annihilate each other. Yeah. Um, so, anyways, Penrose process, Google it. There's a good Futurama episode about it uh, where cats steal our planet's rotational energy. Interesting. It's great. Um, Sometimes my cat steals my chair's rotational energy. <laughs> I've seen a, a ch- cat rotating in a chair around here. It, it, that, it, the cat was on the chair, and it had 
extra rotational energy added. Yes. Yeah. Must have been a huge um, torque going around, too. Enough to break a leg. <laughs> and five claws. Yeah, that too. So, I... Yeah, so the, the Penrose process, the I think the accretion disk is... Uh, around a black hole anyways, is when it's rotating, it's so there's sort of a shear effect of the disk of things that are in orbit around it, because obviously things can be in orbit around a black hole, same as they can be in orbit around a star, right. outside of the event horizon. Um, and so uh, apparently these um, accretion disks around black holes are it can emit like energetic photons, cosmic mm-hmm. rays, that sort of thing. And so harnessing those is uh seems incredibly complicated and dangerous just to get some energy um and uh, another another uh type 2 civilization method is star lifting where where um a civilization could remove a portion of a star's mass in a controlled manner we have a mice problem to uh, <laughs> a large 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 mice um <laughs> to to harness that stellar mass for other uses, uh, things like that for type two civilizations. Uh, type three civilizations, uh, we don't know. We honestly, all of this speculation it is, is just uh, speculation. You know, but so like when you think about it, like we, I don't know what that was. So you know, like we were talking about the other day. How, you know, weaponry in the future, you know, we know all about our nuclear weapons and stuff, but what about, like, gravitational weapons, or what about uh, weak weak force weapons? Hypometric. Hypometric weapons. We're like, who knows? What about time weaponry? So, I mean, all that stuff is stuff we can think about now, but all of this stuff seems really within the realm of what we can even think of now, right? Right. So, I'm sure there's even more complicated things we could do to harness energy out of, you know, the middle of nowhere. Yeah, and honestly... I mean, just the, the these definitions of each type that I've been reading are from Wikipedia, and they don't really line up, if you think about it. I agree. We have had far higher energy consumption than Kardashev's original Type 1 definition for, like, since 1964, because that's when he said it, mm-hmm. and these Type 1 civilization methods are, like, beyond our reach now. Well, so, still. like, when you, like, put our, when you put our progress on a, on a, you know, on a graph, it looks really exponential, right? But then when you zoom out far enough, it's essentially zero. Well, right, because it's exponential, right? So eventually when you yeah. get to the window size, it looks mm-hmm. exponential. So so what if you just zoom out enough and you don't worry about it? Well, if you zoom out to a certain point, then it yeah. looks exponential. I mean, like... Yeah, right. but what I'm saying is, at some point, we can only... You know, we see the exponential right now... But we can't see at which point it becomes linear again, or um, you know, right? Well, too low to notice. We right. We can't. so all of those discoveries that aren't mentioned here, or you know, all those things that are possible. They could be a type four. We just don't know. Right. It's like we have trouble predicting the future. Didn't you write hacks and cell phones? I wrote a blog post. Yeah, this this seems really psychological. I think this was a topic on another show too. Yeah. Is this what time travel? I think so. (laughs) Um. It's his black hole that's doing it. It's oh. his tower. Yeah, the, the matchstick time travel machine. Mm-hmm. Of diamond, green light matches. Strike the match on the box to light. I can harness the Advertising. power of green light. Give us some money. <laughs> Come on. I've done that like 12 times today. <laughs> yeah. Um, Let's say I'm traveling out of this galaxy, um, 
trying to, approaching the speed of light. And I've been traveling for, I don't know, let's say seven years now. And so you know that um, everybody feels time differently. And so if you had a universal system for, um, like, Stardate system, how would that work? If, like, you know, in Star Trek, every ship has been out for, like, 30 years in different directions, doing going different speeds. Um, how does Stardate work? I'm not... I'm not really familiar with Star Trek, so I'm not. Oh, I guess I'm not okay. exactly sure how that would work. But um, I guess usually, uh, from what I've read in science fiction and stuff, uh, star date is usually given as uh, the time, or the the current date on Earth. Like if if you had been on Earth that whole time, then whatever day it would be. Because I mean, okay. when the way that relativistic travel works is you experience maybe six years, but 20 years have still passed outside of your frame of reference. So if you spend 10 years going at like 90% the speed of light away from the Earth, and then you come back for 10 years going at 90% the speed of light towards the Earth, 20 years will have passed. On some, I'm making these numbers up. I'm not doing like the actual calculations in my head. But um, about 20 years would have passed on Earth, and about six years, I think, would have passed for uh, you in the spaceship. Um, so the the date on Earth is still accurate. I mean, like, it, your biological clock wouldn't have experienced the same amount of time, but the the date is still constant, I guess. Is that what you were Yeah, I was just about? wondering, because, like, they have a whole fleet of starships, and they're all going different directions at ten times the speed of light and doing crazy stuff, um going through wormholes and going back in time to save Earth and all these other right. crazy things. How do they have one universal set of time? That's just what I was wondering. Well, uh, yeah, so I think I think it's based on the the Earth Earth time. What if Earth was destroyed? I think, I think well, it's still they, based if, on Earth like time. Like, if they still agreed on it, then it would be okay. Um, mm. So I, I was just reading the Wikipedia page on this, and there really is a Wikipedia page on it. So in the original series, it didn't mean anything. So uh, apparently, it was more. It was actually mapped to Earth time in the original series, like one tenth of the point, like the decimal. It would be one tenth of a day on Earth, but then in the Next Generation series, and then in Voyager, and then in Deep Space Nine, and then in Nemesis, they all used um, a different system. So a star date is a five-digit number followed by a decimal point and one more digit. So, for example, forty-one two fifty-four. Point seven. The first two digits are of, of star dates are always 41. That first digit stands for the 24th century, so it's the 4th and the 24, which would make no sense. Well, like, what happens in, you know, the 3000s? Yeah, who knows? So then, the 1 indicates the first season of the series, so that's totally fake. Okay. The next three digits will unevenly progress during the course of the season from 000 to 999, and then... The decimal point is a day counter. Okay. Like, so, so just yeah. made up. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's, the... it's fake. So it, on the top of this page, it says, Stardate was originally created to conceal and hide and obscure when the timeline was in the of, of the Star Trek series. Because they didn't, the uh, presumably Roddenberry didn't want anybody to actually know when this would happen. Yeah. And um, on the VHS copies of the Star Trek Next Generations, they show what episode number it is, but they also have the star date that mm-hmm. that episode took place. And I, was just, I thought that was kind of weird, and I was just wondering how that worked. Hmm. I wonder if it would be actually, you know, if you actually did watch them all in that, it would show you, like, the progression. 
Can I tell you something? I would never take the time to do that. Somebody did, I'm sure. I'm sure somebody has, but I'll leave that for you two. Okay. Well, it's uh, been a good show. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'll, thanks for having me on. Yeah, any, anytime. Show. You know, you're, you're the one who's always here. Yeah, either way. Thanks, guys. Yeah, have a good one there, Matt. And so I will see you again next Saturday. Probably. For the next show of the universe. Yeah. Or we'll talk. And this Probably is the show person. where we talk about science. Is that what we talk about? Sometimes. We, we occasionally talk about... pseudoscience or... Pseudoscience. We talk about fiction. Science fiction. Science. Science fiction. Um, we just like to talk, I think. Sometimes. Yes. So where can we find you again? Uh, you can follow me at Twitter, Sam Eberts, um, or my blog, I guess, mm. if I ever blogged. Yeah, you got to do that more. It's good for you. Yeah. Especially when we can relate those things back to the podcast. Right. Yeah. And, of course, you can find me just about everywhere you can imagine, because if you're listening to this, you've already found me multiple times. I am, of course, Ryan Rampersad, and this is The Universe. Have a good one.